This is EW News, live from Berlin. Banned in Russia. The foreign ministry in Moscow announces it is shutting down this network, Germany's international broadcaster, Deutsche Welle. The move comes in retaliation for Berlin's decision to ban German language programming from Russia's state media broadcaster. And a major blow to the so-called Islamic State. The United States says the leader of the IS was taken off the battlefield during a raid by U.S. forces in northwest Syria. Several other people reported killed during the operation near the Turkish border. I'm Leila Harak. Thank you so much for joining us. Russia has announced it is banning this network, Deutsche Welle, Germany's international broadcaster, as a retaliatory move. The foreign ministry said it was closing Deutsche Welle's Moscow bureau and revoking accreditation for our staff there. This is in response to Germany's decision to ban German language programming from Russia's state media broadcaster, RT. And uh, we can talk now to uh, DW's Director General, uh, Peter Lindbergh, who is here. And um, Mr. Lindbergh, first of all, I just want to get your reaction. Were you expecting this? Oh, we had been expecting some measures by the Russian side, but I think this uh, is a total overreacting uh, from the Russian government because uh, um, it, they're closing the bureau, they, they want us not to, to broadcast anything anymore in Russia. And I think uh, also that our correspondence must leave. Um, obviously, uh, Russia is something which is uh, a really overreaction. And uh, it's not even a tit-for-tat measure if you want, want to see it like this, because first of all, you can't compare uh, RT German with the Deutsche Welle. I mean, we're a public service broadcaster and not a state government uh, broadcaster. And on the other hand, we have to see that uh, Russian journalists uh, will continue to work freely in Germany and can broadcast whatever they want. So, um, and this is not the case with our colleagues. So it's really um, disappointing to see this, how the Russian government is reacting. And what will happen next? Is there anything that you can do? Uh, we will take legal steps uh, and uh, try to, to see whether these uh, measures are legal, even from Russian standards. Uh, but this is something which we will have to discuss uh, in the coming, coming hours. But I think legal steps is something we will take. Um, and then we will um, discuss this also, obviously, with, the, with our institutions here in Germany. Yeah. You know, we have so many dedicated, hardworking staff uh, working for years in Russia. Have you heard from them? Have you been in touch with them? How are they feeling about this decision? Well, obviously, they're also shocked by the, by the measures because uh, everybody was expecting that there might be coming something. Uh, and this is also what the foreign ministry in, in Moscow yesterday announced, that there will be some kind of reaction. Um, but uh, I think for people who really love to work in Russia and they love the German, they love the Russian uh, culture, they, they are really into, into uh, reporting from this, this beautiful and so interesting country. It's hard to accept that they have to stop one day uh, to the other. And so I think they are shocked. And uh, yes, it is something which is, which is also sad uh, for a journalist to leave the country uh, on short notice. And in terms of press freedom, of course, the press has been under attack for some time in Russia. But uh, what does this signal to you now? 
Well, the press freedom in Russia is, is, is minimal. I mean, there, there are some independent outlets, but they're struggling. And this is another sign that Russia is not interested in, uh, and the Russian government is not interested in press freedom and freedom of opinion. But I can only say, um, even if we have to leave the country, we will I, intensify reporting on the country. So I think this must be also clear to the Russian side that we will not just ignore what's happening in Russia, we will report and we will do more and more. DW Director General Peter Limburg, thank you very much. Thanks You're for welcome, your reaction. Mark. Well, this decision from Moscow comes as German Chancellor Olaf Scholz prepares to head to Russia's capital for talks on Ukraine. The chancellor called the buildup of Russian troops on Ukraine's border very serious and said any invasion would come with serious consequences. The German chancellor has been under pressure from other NATO members to take a more harder line on Russia. No date has been set yet for his trip to Moscow. Okay, we can talk more about this uh, with uh, DW's political correspondent, Simon Young. Uh, Simon, pressure mounting on the chancellor to take more action, to be more proactive when it comes to Russia. Now he's headed to Moscow. What do you think he hopes to achieve with his visit? Well, Chancellor Scholz is uh, still talking uh, very clearly about de-escalation as the top priority uh, and avoiding uh, conflict in Ukraine. I think that is the main thing he'll be seeking to do when he goes uh, to Moscow. It's the first uh, face-to-face meeting between uh, Scholz and uh, and Putin. Uh, it will be when uh, when it happens uh, since uh, since Scholz became Chancellor, and it'll be a chance for him to look him in the eyes and. And uh, it called to mind what the price could be for further Russian aggression uh, in Ukraine. Uh, he said that all options are on the table if there were military action. Uh, so um, de-escalation de and at the same time uh, talking tough, I think they go hand in hand. And this is part of a wider diplomatic effort uh, by Chancellor Schultz. He'll be going to Washington to talk with President Biden at the beginning of next week. There are also suggestions there could be a three-way meeting uh, with the uh, French and uh, Polish presidents to discuss Ukraine. And of course, he'll also be talking uh, to the Ukrainian government at the same time. So uh, a multi-pronged uh, diplomatic uh, offensive, so to speak. Uh, Simon, as you outlined there, the Germans going for the carrot and stick approach, it seems. What kind of leverage does Chancellor Scholz have? Well, the key thing that we've uh, repeatedly talked about, of course, is uh, Nord Stream 2, the gas uh, pipeline to bring Russian gas uh, to Germany and Europe. Uh, and uh, as I said, uh, Chancellor Scholz has said all options are on the table. That includes that pipeline, uh, saying that it won't go into operation if there were Russian aggression. It's a tough uh, call for Chancellor Scholz because Germany is very reliant on gas imports, particularly from Russia. I think Germany plays a role in other ways. It's key for NATO deployments, as we've seen with this decision by the US to uh, deploy more troops into Europe. That happens usually through Germany. Uh, and also, of course, Germany is a key uh, lead country uh, in the EU in terms of diplomatic reactions. Uh, Simon, uh, my final question to you. The uh, Chancellor's party, uh, the uh, Social Democrats, uh, they, of course, are under fire for being too amiable when it comes to Russia. Let's put it that way. Uh, does that bother the Chancellor? 
Well, uh, Chancellor Schultz says, uh, no, the uh, SPD is uh, totally united and they uh, want to stand up uh, to aggression and avoid war. Uh, but, uh, you know, when it was put to him, for instance, is he getting too much advice from the former Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder, who, of course, is a big backer uh, of that Nord Stream 2 project? He says, well, uh, he seemed rather irritated and said, look, there's only one Chancellor in Germany and that's me. Uh, so I think uh, there are divisions within the, his party, but also within the uh, three uh, party coalition government here in Germany. Uh, and uh, not everybody's exactly on message when it comes to Russia. And Simon, we led our broadcast uh, with the news that DW has uh, been banned in uh, Russia. Uh, in a few words, will that worsen already strained uh, bilateral relations? Well, we've had some reaction from the uh, culture minister, Claudia Roth. She says it's completely unacceptable and is clearly an attempt by Moscow to retaliate for uh, Germany's decision not to allow RT, uh, the Russia Today uh, broadcaster, to operate here in Germany. Uh, so there's already pushback. It's a strained relationship. Uh, the Navalny poisoning and so on have uh, caused real problems in the Russian-German relationship. This doesn't help. All right. Uh, Simon Young, DW's political correspondent. Thank you. And we can take you now to the Ukrainian capital, to Kiev. DW correspondent Nick Conley is standing by. Uh, Nick, uh, we heard that German Chancellor Olaf Scholz uh, will visit Moscow in person and meet with President Putin. He hasn't been to Kiev yet. Will that worsen what's already a strained bilateral relationship? Well, there definitely has been a precedent in recent years for German leaders, German ministers to stop by in Kiev, either on the way back or way to Moscow. And the fact that Kiev is not on his itinerary is obviously something that won't be welcomed here in Kiev. There's fears here that discussions are being held about Ukraine and its future without Ukraine at the table. That's become something of a mantra of Ukrainian diplomats. Um, so that's definitely something that they will be displeased about. But it's not a surprise. They have been very uh, open in their criticism of this new German administration and particularly um, Olaf Scholz's Social Democratic Party, seeing them as too willing to accommodate Russia, too soft, as the Ukrainians would see it, on that Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which they see as part of Russia's hybrid warfare against them rather than an um, economic uh, project with, with no you know, political implications. So that fits. But having said that, next week we are expecting a visit from Germany's Foreign Minister Baerbock. So it's not as if diplomacy is fully uh, at an end uh, between Germany and Ukraine. Uh, now, let's talk about the Turkish uh, uh, president who is uh, now, as we speak, in Ukraine. How serious is this Turkish offer to mediate between Ukraine and Russia being taken in Kiev? I think it would be something that would be welcomed by the Ukrainians. Any uh, effort by a serious regional power to de-escalate is something that is being welcomed. I'm not sure they're making any big hopes that this is going to fly. So far, the signals coming from Moscow have been pretty negative. After all, Turkey is a NATO member, even though it has uh, closer security cooperation with Russia than most of the NATO members. So it's not really clear where this is going to lead, if it will happen. But it's certainly a diplomatic show of force, part of this blitz of uh, diplomatic visits to Kiev that have really you know, shown in the last few days that this is something that is very much on the radar of regional powers and of the West and is not something that is going to be allowed to happen without involvement from the outside. It's really an interesting balancing act that Turkey is trying to pull off there. Uh, it has been supplying drones to Ukraine, which, of course, Russia regards as highly provocative. Can they act as a broker in this crisis? Well, I think the, the issue is that Turkey does have very... Uh, 
in varied and very uh, profound links to Russia. They do a lot of trade, there's a lot of tourism going on. Uh, and as I mentioned, they have already bought Russian weapons from uh, Moscow against objections from Washington. So they have shown that willingness to disagree with NATO's largest member, the United States. Um, having said that, I, I think right now you get the sense from Moscow that the only people they're really willing to take seriously are the United States. This is a kind of Cold War format where Vladimir Putin wants to meet Joe Biden. And even if he is meeting Olaf Scholz in Moscow soon or will be meeting uh, Erdogan in Turkey in the next few days, for the Russians, the basic line is that this is about some kind of grand deal, grand bargain between Russia and the US about spheres of influence. Now, the US don't give the, any indication that they're willing to give that to the Russians, but certainly you don't get a sense that Moscow is very interested in talking to anyone but Joe Biden right now. Um, Nick, uh, my final question to you. There's been a, a string of world leaders uh, paying uh, their uh, paying visits to uh, Ukraine, to Kiev, uh, in a show of uh, solidarity. What has come out of these visits, and especially today's visit, you know, in terms of optics? Is it just a show of support, or did something more concrete come out of this? Well, President Erdogan does have some things up his sleeve. He has uh, a free trade deal that's being signed, but also uh, plans to build a factory so that Ukraine will be able to build those uh, Bayraktar drones for itself. There's going to be cooperation with Ukrainian arms manufacturers pr to provide uh, motors for those drones, um, engines, so that it would become a kind of Ukrainian-Turkish joint project. Those have really... Uh, shocked the Russians in their effectiveness. They were used the first time by the Ukrainian forces last autumn when Ukrainians said they came under fire by Russian-backed separatists. Moscow very wary about Ukraine being able to strengthen its army with the help of those drones. Um, so there's definitely a lot on the Ukrainian wish list when they come into contact with uh, President Erdogan. But the big picture remains that Ukraine has no potential membership of NATO or the EU on the horizon anytime soon. So Ukraine is painfully aware of the fact that if Russia were to uh, launch an invasion of its country, Ukraine would largely be on its own with only supplies of weapons and maybe money and sanctions uh, from the West and from Turkey as support. Nick Conley reporting from Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you. And we also want to tell you about breaking developments out of Washington. U.S. President Joe Biden says the leader of the so-called Islamic State has been killed during a targeted raid by U.S. forces in Syria. Senior U.S. officials say Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Qureshi blew himself up as the operation got underway in the northwest of the country. A short while ago, the U.S. president gave a statement. Let's go to Washington. DW's Oliver Salas is standing by. Oliver, what more can you tell us about this raid? It was the biggest U.S. raid uh, carried out in Syria since the killing of former ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, and that was in 2019. We know that 13 people were killed, according to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, but all U.S. soldiers uh, were able to get out safely, uh, according to the U.S. government. Now, as a reminder, this comes after... Um, a major IS uh, attack at Kabul airport. You remember those images of last August when the evacuation was underway and thousands of uh, Afghani citizens, men, women, children, 
were trying to escape and ISIS uh, carried out a suicide attack in those crowds of people killing ironically exactly the same number uh, of people that were killed there in this retaliation strike. 13 U.S. soldiers at the time died and President Biden vowed retaliation and now taking down uh, the highest ISIS leader certainly is that kind of retaliation that the president was hoping for. And what do we know, what can you tell us about the timing of this raid? Why did it take place now? Well, certainly look uh, worth looking at the bigger picture. Um, and uh, President Biden is uh, at a time right now where he is facing enormous pressure. His policy packages, parts of his um, election campaign stall the so-called Build Back Better Act. In addition, his popularity is, a, is at a historic low. Only uh, President Trump was less popular than uh, President Biden is at the time. And now, of course, uh, the troop pullout of Afghanistan was considered a failure in policy and also the way it was carried out, especially after that Kabul airport uh, attack. And President Biden at the time vowed retaliation. So this now can be considered somewhat of a correction of that image. And, and certainly that success story he urgently needed, uh, needed because we are also in, in an election year. So there's the midterm elections um, this fall. But on the other hand, the best days of ISIS are over. Um, and certainly they're not as big uh, as they used to be. They don't have their territories anymore. And so that killing of al-Qurashi is not as important as the killing of al-Baghdadi in 2019 or even of uh, former al-Qaeda leader bin Laden during the Obama tenure. DW's Oliver Sallet reporting from Washington. Thank you. The United Kingdom and Denmark are among the first European countries to lift most of their coronavirus restrictions. Despite relatively high case numbers, their governments have decided the virus now poses less of a risk to citizens and public health care systems. But while many are hoping this could be a step towards life beyond the pandemic, some businesses are choosing to keep taking precautions. And experts are warning the virus is still unpredictable. Packed pubs in London as people meet for a drink after work, just like they did before the pandemic. A cherished tradition, revived even as the coronavirus is still wafting through the air. If we're being eased into that now and it's, and it's working, I think it's, I think it's OK and I think it's happy, it's lovely coming out without having to move. <laughs> well, I've had my three vaccines, so, you know. I do, have you had COVID, SJ? I had it really early on right, so and I'm fully vaccinated with my booster and I do feel very safe. Almost all restrictions in the UK have been lifted. The vaccination rate is high, especially among older people. New infections are decreasing and hospitals are admitting fewer patients, but some still urge caution. It has always demonstrated its ability to surprise us. Now, there are some that have this idea that in some way viruses tend to evolve to become less dangerous. That's actually not based on any good historical evidence. And it's perfectly possible that another one will come along that is more severe. Businesses are now free to write their own rules. At this hair salon, employees are supposed to still wear a mask. We're doing so to make you feel more comfortable. If you'd rather not, that's absolutely fine as a client. Sit down, don't wear a mask. Again, whatever makes you happy. The government is already planning its final phase. From mid-March, those with COVID-19 will no longer have to self-isolate. Meanwhile, in Denmark, restored freedoms are being welcomed too. 
Designers Søren Le Schmidt and his team are making final preparations before Fashion Week starts in Copenhagen. Mask-free and test-free. I am so happy that we can come together again and celebrate fashion. Many Danes are relaxed about restrictions having been lifted a second time. More than 80% of the population is double vaccinated. More than 60% has had a booster. There are far fewer patients in hospital ICUs. But the number of new infections remains high. A problem for schools and daycare centers, which are struggling to stay open due to severe staff shortages. The government is warning people not to underestimate the virus in spite of the freedom. That's why, here too, many businesses are voluntarily maintaining some precautions. Let's take a look now at some of the other developments in the pandemic. Germany's Vaccine Commission has recommended a second COVID-19 booster be given to at-risk groups. That includes the over 70s, those with compromised immune systems and healthcare workers. Sweden announced it will lift pandemic restrictions starting Wednesday. The prime minister said the hospital system was coping well despite a high number of infections. And in Bali, Indonesia, that island is welcoming back its first international flights in nearly two years. A dozen passengers are set to arrive from Tokyo on Thursday. Vaccinated tourists must still quarantine for five to seven days upon arrival. Tonga has gone into lockdown after confirming a number of COVID-19 cases. The Pacific Island nation is still recovering from a devastating volcanic eruption and massive tsunami last month. While before the disaster, Tonga was COVID-free. Ships bringing aid are likely to have carried the virus to the island. Let's take you to Washington now. U.S. President Joe Biden speaking. leader of ISIS, known as Haji Abdullah. He took over as leader of ISIS in uh, 2019 after the United States counterterrorism operation killed al-Baghdadi. Since then, ISIS has directed terrorist operations targeting Americans, our allies and our partners, and countless civilians in the Middle East, Africa, and in South Asia. Haji Abdullah oversaw the spread of ISIS-affiliated terrorist groups around the world after savaging communities and murdering innocents. He was responsible for the recent brutal attack on a prison in northeast Syria, holding ISIS fighters, which was swiftly addressed by our brave partners in the Syrian Democratic Forces. He was the driving force behind the genocide of the Yazidi people in northwestern Iraq in 2014. We all remember the gut-wrenching stories, mass slaughters that wiped out entire villages, thousands of women and young girls sold into slavery. Rape used as a weapon of war. And thanks to the bravery of our troops, this horrible terrorist leader is no more. Our forces carried out the operation with their signature preparation and precision, and I directed the Department of Defense to take every precaution possible to minimize civilian casualties. Knowing that this terrorist had chosen to surround himself with families, including children, we made a choice to pursue a special forces raid at a much greater risk than our, to our own people, rather than targeting him with an airstrike. We made this choice to minimize civilian casualties. Our team is still compiling the report, but we do know 
that as our troops approach to capture the terrorists in a final act of desperate cowardice, he, with no regard to the lives of his own family or others in the building, he chose to blow himself up, not just to the vest, but to blow up that third floor rather than face justice for the crimes he has committed, taking several members of his family with him, just as his predecessor did. I'm grateful for the immense courage and skill and determination of our U.S. forces, who skillfully executed this incredibly challenging mission. The members of our military are the solid steel backbone of this nation, ready to fly into danger at a moment's notice to keep our country and the American people safe, as well as our allies. And I'm also grateful to the families of our service members. You serve right alongside yours of these soldiers and sailors, Marines, Special Forces, the loved ones, giving them the strength and support they need to do what they do. To our service members and their families, we're forever grateful for the, what you do for us, and we owe you a debt. Thank you. We're also aided by the essential partnership of the Syrian Democratic Forces. I want to commend our dedicated intelligence community, the Department of Defense, and members of our national security team throughout the government, whose meticulous and tireless work over the course of many months ensured that this mission succeeded. This operation is testament to America's reach and capability to take out terrorist threats no matter where they try to hide anywhere in the world. I'm determined to protect the American people from terrorist threats, and I'll take decisive action to protect this country. And we'll continue working with our close allies and partners, the Syrian Democratic Forces, the Iraqi Security Forces, including the Kurdish Peshmerga, and more than 80 members of the global coalition to keep pressure on ISIS to protect our homeland. We remain vigilant. We remain prepared. Last night's operation took a major terrorist leader off the battlefield, and it sent a strong message to terrorists around the world. We will come after you and find you. Once again, today, we continue our unceasing effort to keep the American people safe and to strengthen the security of our allies and partners around the world. I want to thank you all, and may God bless you, and may God protect our troops. I'm heading off to New York right now. I'm late, and I uh, thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Mr. President, how many U.S. troops were involved, sir? Mr. President, how many civilian casualties were there? And that was U.S. President Joe Biden delivering remarks there about last night's operation, which took out a IS leader. And we'll get you more in our next bulletin and try to break it down, what it all means. But for now, let's go and bring up speed with the other stories making world news today. New Zealand will begin reopening its borders in phases starting at the end of February. Fully vaccinated citizens and visa holders from Australia will be allowed in first. Under the new rules, vaccinated citizens entering the country will be allowed to quarantine at home instead of at a managed isolation facility. Benny Gantz has become the first Israeli defense minister to visit Bahrain. It's the latest high-profile diplomatic trip since the country's normalized ties. Israel's reconciliation with several Arab nations breaks with decades of Arab League consensus against recognizing Israel until it signs a peace agreement establishing a Palestinian state. Shares in Facebook owner Meta plunged by 20 percent. 
in after-hours trading on Wednesday, knocking a massive $200 billion off the company's value. The fall came after Chief Executive Mark Zuckerberg told investors that Meta expected first-quarter revenues to dip due to competition from rivals like TikTok. Belgian skeleton racer Kim Melemans has been taken to the Olympic Village in Beijing in an IOC intervention after she made an emotional appeal on Instagram. After a positive test on her arrival in the Chinese capital, Melemans was initially taken directly into isolation, where she then returned three consecutive negative PCR tests. Well, in the video that you're about to see, she describes what happened and why she was picked up from the isolation unit. We thought this meant I was allowed to return to the Olympic Village and will be treated maximum as a close contact. Um, on the way to the village, uh, we did not turn to the village, but the ambulance went to another facility where I am now. A distressed months uh, there. A reminder of the top stories now uh, that we are covering this hour. Russia's foreign ministry has announced it is banning this network, Deutsche Welle, and shutting down DW's Moscow bureau. The move comes in retaliation for Germany's decision to ban German language programming from Russia's state media broadcaster, RT. You're watching DW News. We'll have a lot more coming up in a couple of seconds. I hope to see you then.